following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. And please stand if you're able. I'm going to read Romans 15 verses 22 through 33. What a privilege we have to open up our Bibles and to hear the Word of God. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." So I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are good. I pray, Lord, that as you use your word in our hearts and lives, that you would do whatever you want in us and through us for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I know the way that our hearts and minds work, it's very easy to think, well, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, So every plan I make needs to come through. I'll just pray and that'll be that. We know that's not how things work. God is not a vending machine. God is not a genie in a bottle. So what happens is we make plans and we pray. We want to see God's power at work. We want to experience the peace of God, but that's not what happens all the time. We make plans, they don't work out. We pray, the silence is deafening. We don't recognize God's power at work, and then we get turmoil instead of peace. And that's why it's so important for us to see what Paul is saying here near the end of his letter to Romans. He's given an example of a real situation. This is very practical. He had planned something, and it wasn't working out. He asks for prayer doesn't know how things are going to work out. And that's how things are in life. That's how things are in our lives. Things are unknown to us. They are known to God. And so Paul is praying for the power of God. Paul is praying for something awesome for the church, the peace of God. And so this passage is really significant for us as we think about our lives and we think about following Jesus and we think about serving the Lord. Romans 15, 22 to 33, deals with plans and prayer and power and peace. And we know something about all of these things. We are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're learning some of these things every day. But what we're going to see in this passage is that gospel glory 
And gospel ministry should shape our entire existence. It's really what we're going to see here today. And, and Paul is talking about real life following Jesus. What it really is like, how, how we make those plans and how they don't work out as we'd hoped and how we pray and we trust God and we struggle and, and we do see his power at work at times and we do experience his peace at times. But sometimes not. Sometimes that's not our experience. Sometimes things don't change. Sometimes things don't work out the way you had hoped. They, they don't move in a direction that even seems to make sense. But here's what a Christian knows. A Christian knows this very clearly, that Jesus loves them, that God cares for them, that God is with them, that, that Jesus is, is working all things together for good for believers, to those who love him and called according to his purpose, and that the unseen God orchestrates the events of our lives. This is what a believer knows. Now next week, I just want to give you a little bit of preview. We're going to get into Romans 16, and we'll have like two sermons left in Romans. And we're going to have to go through some review, really, of this book and where we have been and how this book is ending up. But, but here... Paul is, is really bringing the main body of Romans to a close. And it's been so beautiful. I don't know about you, but I think it's just so beautiful and so edifying what Paul has been saying to us in Romans 15 and immensely practical for our lives. The chapter starts by talking about imitating Christ. So every Christian wants to imitate Christ. Every Christian wants to follow what Paul said when he said, look, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? And so we find out we have this obligation and it's to create harmony in the church and to build other believers up. That we're not to serve ourselves, but other people. And it's following Jesus' example, his substitutionary atonement on our, on our behalf, his substitutionary endurance, really. And we see the teaching of Scripture. In fact, 15 verse 4 is awesome because it talks to us about Scripture's ongoing encouragement and endurance that, it, that results and then Paul prays, right at the beginning of, of Romans 15, he prays that the whole church would be unified in their exaltation of Christ. Because you find out you cannot exalt Christ, you cannot worship Christ when you're not in unity with fellow believers. Then we moved on, verses 7 to 14, to, to talk about rejoicing in gospel glory. Just the, the privilege of relishing gospel glory and how Christ's welcome of us into the body of Christ drives our unity. And then Christ's work, where he keeps you know, all his promises and he applies mercy to us. The shed blood of Christ applied to every Christian's life. It leads us to worship Christ. That we, it generates praise to Christ. And we are Christ's witnesses, and so we overflow in hope. And this is an amazing thing when you think about gospel glory. Like, think tomorrow. You have plans for tomorrow morning. You're either going to you know, get up and go to work or start teaching your kids or, start, or take your kids to school or go to the market. Or maybe you say, I'm just going to sleep in tomorrow morning. Whatever the case, you're, you've got plans that you're making even tomorrow morning. And here's the thing. Romans 15 has showed us that Christians are to overflow in hope because of their faith in Christ. So what I'm wondering is, what are the people that you're going to meet with tomorrow morning going to get when they run into you? Are they going to get overflowing hope in Christ, or are they going to get 
a grumpy attitude or complaining or talking behind someone's back. Now, let me tell you the grumpiest people on earth on a Monday morning, preachers, pastors, I'm serious. Mondays are like horrible for me. I'm thinking, I don't know how that sermon went yesterday. And oh, that person was upset or that person complained about someone or whatever. And you think about all these things. And so pastors are like the people in the foulest mood, I think, on a lot of Monday mornings. It takes a lot of grace to be around a pastor on a Monday. Maybe that's why a lot of pastors take Mondays off. I don't know. Like, don't be around many people because you just have a bad mood on Mondays. I don't know. All I know is, why aren't we overflowing with hope in the power of the Holy Spirit? We got to ask ourselves this question. Maybe it's because I'm too focused on myself. Maybe it's because you're thinking about yourself too much. I don't know, but God knows. But we want to be rejoicing in gospel glory. And then last week, we looked at four pillars of gospel ministry. Just strong, strong pillars, and they really tie in with gospel glory that we saw the week before. The idea of preparing witnesses for Christ, that we are preparing witnesses for Christ, and we are presenting worshipers to Christ, not to ourselves. We are not gathering people around us to follow us, but we want people worshiping Jesus and following Jesus so that we would be praising the work of Christ, that we would not be praising our own works, but that we would say, wow, look what Jesus did. Do you see the attitude he changed in my heart? Do you see how he changed my relative? Do you see how he blessed us on this, this ministry that we did? And then what it does is it just jumpstarts you to keep preaching the word of Christ, that you're like excited about the gospel. And this is not just for people called to preach in front of a church. This is every Christian who's been saved by Jesus going out into every realm that they are called with the gospel your own home, your neighborhood, your office, your school, wherever God sends you, that you overflow in hope because of the glory of God in Christ and you preach the word of Christ wherever you are. Now, we get to this place here where we are at the end of chapter 15 and here's what's happening. Paul is beginning to wind it down. He, he like throttles back and he's about to land the plane. Now the wheels aren't touching down in chapter 15, okay? They will touch down in chapter 16. But the wheels are about to touch down. And what Paul is doing is what he has done all the way through Romans. He is being personal, he is being heartfelt, and he is talking about significant things. And he's doing that in this context right here in a very practical way. He's talking about his plans. He's talking about prayer requests. He's talking about the power of God. He's talking about the peace of God. These are all things that Christians deal with on a daily basis. So he's winding it down, about to bring the plane in for a landing, and what he clearly shows us in this passage, through a very heartfelt conclusion to the main body of the letter, that gospel glory and gospel ministry ought to shape our everyday existence. It ought to shape our everyday life. This is the significance that we see in this passage. Here's Paul, he's talking about his ministry. He's continuing to speak about his ministry and his plans for the future, his future work in service of Christ, and he's bearing his heart to the group. He is telling them, and, and by the way, this is a group that most of them he had never met. This is a church he had never been to, a place he had never been. And he gives us some very practical implications for following Christ and serving Christ in our life. And he illustrates it by four examples, really simple, profound truths of everyday Christian living that will help us. 
as it relates to plans and prayer and power and peace. In fact, here's what we're going to do in this sermon. We're going to open, you know, look at our Bibles, and I'm going to talk about plans. Then we're going to move on, talk about prayer. Then we'll move on and talk about power. And then we'll move on and talk about peace. That sound good? That's the plan right here. And I'll say amen at the end, and we'll go. All right? Well, let's do this. First of all, let's talk about plans. I want to talk to you about plans because this is, this is specifically talking about Paul's plan to visit Rome. And what you're going to find out is, and this is the point you need to see in this, this, this first idea here, and you see it in verses 22 to 29. The bulk of this passage is dealing with these plans. And here's the truth. God's providential orchestration overrules our personal planning. God's providential orchestration overrules our personal planning. Now, if you don't grasp that yet, you're struggling through life pushing against that truth because all of us deal with our plans and our plans changing or falling apart, but we know as believers we serve a sovereign God who providentially orchestrates our lives. Look at verse 22 with me. Paul starts by saying this. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. Now, hindered is a, is a strong word. It means to cut into, to cut someone's access off. If you play racquetball, you understand hindering to where the person gets in front of you and impedes your ability to hit the ball. Well, he is saying that my access to going to Rome has been cut off. And it's been happening a lot. It's an ongoing issue. So you think about something in your life that you've wanted to do for a long time and it just isn't working out. And you want to do something good. It's something good you want to do, but it's not working out and you're getting hindered from doing that. Paul is talking about an ongoing issue that's external from him. He's not, you know, stubbing his toe on this gospel opportunity. He, it's not happening because something from the outside is preventing him from going to Rome. Now, he has talked to the Thessalonians about something similar in fact, it was Satan that was hindering him. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17-19, he says to the Thessalonians, we were torn from you for a short time. In person, not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So there's one kind of hindering. But even then, it's still under the providential care of God. Here, he's being prevented from visiting Rome, and it's happened again and again and again. But what's the reason? He starts off verse 22 saying, this is the reason. Just look at verse 20, right before it, 20 and 21. In 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has, has not been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. As it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. And the idea is the reason is because Paul's so busy planting churches and preaching the gospel, he couldn't visit Rome. He was doing something really good. He was doing his calling. He has planted churches from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, as far as you can go, all the way to Greece. And, and he says this, this is my ambition, this is what I'm doing. What it's pointing out to us is that the providential hindering of God overrode his personal planning. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So Paul's ministry in one place took priority over another ministry he wanted to do. Now how often are we willing to have our plans put off 
that we go, you know what, uh, we want our way all the time, don't we? We don't want our plans cut off. We don't want our plans hindered. In fact, some of us work so hard on our agenda that we'll push through pretty much any barrier to do what we plan to do. What Paul is saying is, this is up to God. In verse 23, he says, now look, I, I no longer have any room or any place here for work in these regions. So he'd cover the, the area with the gospel. He's gonna move on to different areas. And then he says, and since I have longed that's an intense longing, that's a great desire, that's a, it's really a um, craving on his part. I have longed for many years to come to you. You notice that it's many years. Have you had a desire that's good, that has lasted many years, and it, it hasn't been realized? This is Paul. And so he returns to a theme that he actually brought up in chapter one. Go back to chapter one and look at verse eight with me. Several of those verses. He reminds them that he wanted to visit them. And look what he says, look what he said in, in chapter one. In fact, I preached this on September 10th, 2017. You might remember. I don't, so if you remember, God bless you. I'm pretty sure only God remembers this. But he says this, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may at now succeed at last in coming to you. So he is praying all the time and his prayer is, Lord, may I go see the Romans. See how practical this is? He wants to see a bunch of believers that he's never met. He wants to go to a city he's never been to. He wants to see this church and encourage them. In fact, that's what he says. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now you know how good it is when brothers and sisters in Christ dwell together in unity and encourage one another in the Lord. I hope you've experienced a lot of that. I hope you're experiencing that now in your life. See, Paul says, I, I want you to know that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. He's really, really wanting to see the Romans. You know, the scriptures tell us hope deferred makes the heart sick. Paul felt it. You ever just felt that ache in your heart you long to see some fellow believer or a family member that you're just not able to see. Maybe they're far away and maybe the, the trip hasn't worked out or something always comes up. But look at verse 24. There's a glimmer of hope. Paul says, I hope to see you in passing. Now I can picture someone who says to a friend, hey, I'm gonna be you know, in Atlanta and uh, while I have this little layover, I'd like to see you for a little while for a cup of coffee or something. It goes deeper than that for Paul. He says, I hope to see you in passing. So he's saying, I'm gonna go on a journey, I'm gonna be passing through as I go to Spain, okay? So he's going to Spain now. Oh, he's telling them about some plans. This is very, very practical, is it not? He's telling them, I'm going to Spain. And what he's telling, now Spain is the Old Testament Tarshish, okay? This is, this is where Jonah uh, fled to. Far west end of Europe, a, a commerce center, a, a uh, cultural center. Uh, Paul could get there by this vast network of Roman roads, and he is going to go there. He's telling the Romans, he's writing the Romans this letter, and he's saying, by the way, 
I'm hoping to see you on my way to Spain. Then he says this, and be helped on my journey there. What he's saying is, I'm hoping you help me with some money and some food and some transportation. I want to be helped on my journey there by you. I'm hoping that you're going to give me some provisions, maybe even a guide to get me to Spain. But then he says this, and this is is the great part. He says, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So it's not a two-hour layover. He's going to be with them for a little while. That's what he's hoping. This is his plan. It hasn't worked out so far, but this is what he wants. He goes, I'm going to go to Spain. So I got another opportunity that I'm hoping I can see you. I'm going to be going to Spain, and I want to see you on my way there, and I want to enjoy your company for a while. It's a great word, enjoy. It means to fill up. It means to take one's fill up, to be satisfied, to be desired. Think about how sweet it is to be in fellowship with other Christians, and and you enjoy one another's company. He's saying, "I, I want that. I want to make a couple points here that I think will help us as we think about planning and as we think about serving the Lord. The first thing I want to mention is this. Wise planning on your part is not a lack of trust in God and in his providence. I mean, I get up here every week by the grace of God and I I love to preach the word. I love to bring the word to you. But I work on it all week long. I don't get up here, I don't get up on Sunday morning and go, well, I'm gonna wing it. You know, I'm just gonna open my Bible and trust the Holy Spirit. No, I've been opening my Bible all week trusting the Holy Spirit. And I'm trusting that I will get the point of the passage right and that I won't say anything that will stumble anyone and I'll pray that I will be in line with the word and actually say words that, that, again, that don't mess things up. Wise planning on your part is not lacking trust in God's providence. Make your plans. We have planners, you know, you gotta, nowadays people are going back to the paper planners, right? So we, now we have the paper planner and the electronic planner, and we're like, which one am I supposed to be using? Oh no, did I write it down here, or did I type it in here? I don't remember. Anyway, wise planning on your part does not mean that you're not trusting the providence of God. But here's the thing you need to grasp, and I'm learning this every, every day. Our plans have to always be subject to God's editing. You see, our plans have to always be subject to God's control, God's altering, even God's deleting. Paul's were? Mine have to be. Yours have to be. In James chapter 4, verse 15, we read this. That you make your plans, but you need to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, right? That's how a Christian lives, according to the will of God. The other thing I want to mention is that necessary service ought to be a joy for us, not a burden. Even obligatory service ought to be a joy for us, not a burden. Paul even said in, in Romans 1.14 that I am obligated to preach the gospel. Now, we think of that as, oh, you have to do it. Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9. He's saying, like, I really want to do it, and I have to do it. I hope that we would all feel that compelled about the gospel truth that we would say, you know what? Obligatory, necessary service is a joy for me, not a burden. Look what he says at verse 25. He says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem. Now he's telling them, you know, 
I'm not going straight to Spain, and I'm not stopping by Rome just yet. I'm going in the other direction. That's what he's telling them. He says, at present time, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid. Aid is a strong word. It means it's diakono, diakoneo in, in Greek. It means like to be a deacon, to be a servant, to wait upon, to be a host or a friend or a teacher. He's saying, I'm going to minister to the Christians in Jerusalem by bringing them a gift. So here is Paul, who is busy planting churches in new areas, and he's prevented from going to Rome, who he really wanted to visit. He's been praying for it for years, but now he tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem to give them a gift of money. Now some people will be like, can't someone else go so he can go see the Romans? Come on. The collection for the poor is so crucial to Paul's ministry. Gentiles are supporting the work. They're showing their solidarity with Jewish Christians and their spiritual connection to forefathers in the faith. Uh, the unity of Jews and Gentiles, even in giving an offering for a fellow church, is, is showing them, you know, God intends for us to worship together and to serve together. He says in verse 23, for Macedonia and Achaia, these are two places that he went on the first and second missionary journeys, he says they have been pleased to make a contribution. Contribution. And by the way, that's a strong word. That's koinonia. That's fellowship. They're making a fellowship, a contribution to make a distribution, okay? A partnership, a fellowship, a, a sharing that exhibits proof of intimate fellowship with other Christians. He says they made a contribution, a koinonia, a fellowship for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. This is so important to gospel ministry, helping the poor. This shows the gospel's commitment to the poor. This has implications for our mission as a church. Paul was concerned for needy Christians because they were poor. God is deeply concerned for Christians who are poor. And so we need to help each other, and especially those among us who are poor, who don't have everything they need to do what God is calling them to do on a daily basis. And guess what? You know why it's a gospel ministry? Because Isaiah and Jesus and Paul all said that the gospel is good news for the poor. Now, it's good news for the rich too, and everybody in between, but it's good news to the poor. Isaiah 61.1, Luke 4.18. This reminds us, if we're going out with the gospel, if we're going out with the gospel message, we need to reach out to the world in compassion for the needy. That gospel proclamation and reaching out to the poor are not to be divorced from one another as two separate things. That we should have this cheerful, glad, what does Paul say? God loves a hilariously cheerful, glad giver, Right? that we would have this cheerful giving that arises out of our hearts in such a way, literally like you have this inner joyful generosity that originates from your experience of the grace of God in Christ. So Jesus has been so good to me and you. Jesus has touched our hearts. Jesus has cleansed us from our sins. Part of the, the joy of that is saying, and I want to help anybody in need. I hope you see the gospel connection. It involves sacrifice. Paul is going to interrupt long-term plans. I've always wanted to go to Rome. I want to see the Christians there. I want to help you. 
But so he's telling them, I'm going to travel west and I'm going to go to Rome and then Spain. But to go to Jerusalem, he's got to start going east. So now he's making a sacrifice. He's putting his plan on hold for a greater plan that God has shown him. He doesn't even know if the gift that he's going to give will be well accepted. He doesn't even know if he's not going to get you know, attacked on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So despite whatever danger or possible harm to himself, he is coupling gospel preaching with help for the poor very practically. Verse 27, they were pleased. They thought well of it. They approved it. They were glad to do it. And then he says this. This is very significant for us. He says, they owe it to them. Now, here's the deal. If I give you a gift, a lot of times you're like, oh, I better get Mike a gift. <laughs> he gave me something. We feel this reciprocity, right? We have to be reciprocal. I feel bad now that they gave me a gift, and now I've got to get them one, right? A lot of us feel this way. It's natural. What Paul is saying is, Every Christian is indebted to every other Christian. That every Christian, especially in your local assembly, you are actually duty-bound to help each other. Now don't go, you know, demanding that help, okay? Let people do it out of the kindness of their own hearts. But we should be thinking, I am indebted, I am obligated, I am duty-bound to fellow believers. He says, if the Gentiles shared in their spiritual things, they ought to be giving them money as well. Like open up their walls and give the people money who need it. If the Gentiles have come to share, there's the Greek word koinonia again, to be partakers in, uh, into the communion or fellowship of believers, you become a sharer in the gospel, you're made a partner in spiritual blessings, then help them. Help each other. Now spiritual blessings is, is things belonging to the spirit of God. Spiritual things. Those gospel truths that were first preached by by Jewish apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to these Gentiles who then became believers. And he says, if, if they've shared the gospel with them, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Give them help. Now he goes on to talk about his plans. Verse 28, look at verse 28. He says, when I've completed this, he's hoping, he's, he's walking by faith. He says, if I've com- when I've completed this and have delivered to them that which has been collected, Great word, collected, it means picking fruit, okay? Like just this yesterday, I picked the last couple pomegranates on my pomegranate tree. So we've collected all the fruit off that pomegranate tree. Well, this is like a never-ending collection with believers to help other believers that are in need, and he's collected the fruit, the financial gift for the Jerusalem church. It's a fruit of genuine love and concern and gratitude. And he says, once I've done that, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I will drop by Rome and see you. After delivering the gift, Paul's going to visit Rome. That's what he hopes. He hopes this letter is going to spur on the Romans to support the mission to Spain. He's going to go to Italy, and hopefully Italy will be a mission base for the ministry to Spain, for the outreach to Spain. Remember the pattern of going and preaching Christ where he was not yet confessed, not yet yet known. And and it's the gospel to the Gentiles. It's fulfilling God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. He has his hope. He has anticipation. He's like really hoping this comes about. But he doesn't know how it's going to go. He's writing this letter to the Romans, and he doesn't know how things are going to go. And the plans that he has made, they're up in God's hands. 
He's going to actually write this letter and not press send and not get on a plane and go, you know, out of country. He is literally going to give the letter to someone who is going to travel to take it to Rome. And he's hoping that this letter gets to Rome. Well, we know it did. Okay, and it's been preserved by our sovereign God for over 2,000 years. But also, Paul's thinking, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm hoping I live to tell of it so that I can get to Rome. After the gift is given, he'll go to Rome on the way to Spain. And he's convinced that it will be good. He's hoping. You know, hope-filled anticipation is really sweet to our souls. It really is. If you're wanting something really good that God gives to his children, there's a hope-filled anticipation that's very sweet to our souls. He says, I want to come in the fullness of Christ's blessings. Fullness is like a ship. It actually pictures, that word in Greek, pictures a ship full of rowers and sailors and soldiers working together. So he's saying the fullness of the Christ's blessings is the whole body of believers unified, filled with the presence and power of God, enjoying one another's company. But what he's telling us is the plans are under God's sovereign orchestration. This is what I'm hoping happens. The gospel ministry ought to take precedence over our plans and wishes. This is like when you have a choice between a good thing and a better thing. Would you rather? You know, would you rather do this or rather do that? Let's say you, you pull up a, a destination you're going on your maps. Okay, You got it on your phone, you got it on your watch, however you, you do your maps, and you see the, the route the root, excuse me, however you say it, that you see where it's telling you to go and you're like, ah, uh, that doesn't seem right. Ah, oh, it doesn't seem right. I- I'm gonna go the way I wanna go. A lot of us are like this when we get our maps. They're not, they're not always correct. But then you find out of this route that you were supposed to go on, it's, it's, it's diverting you around an accident or it's, it's taking you away from some congestion. You actually get there sooner. So you're like, okay, I should have followed my maps. I, I, now I got stuck in this big traffic jam. What about your plans? What about your plans? Now you're dealing with the sovereign God. Do you say, well, my plans are going to be my plans. I'm going to do this no matter what. And here's a question that you might want to ask yourself. Do my plans involve me alone? Do they mainly involve me? Or are they focused on engaging others outside my circle with the gospel? And are my plans in my mind subject to God's providence? Or am I saying, no, I'm going to do this no matter what? You're going to know that they are subject to God's providence in a very painful way. It's painful either way, but if you're going you know, hard-headedly or you're going pridefully and saying, I'm going to do this no matter what, you might be headed for a fall. It's interesting how God sovereignly orchestrated and providence orchestrated even Paul's movements as an apostle. He's on a second missionary journey. He and Silas are, are wanting to travel north after going to Galatia. They want to travel north to a place uh, called Bithynia. But Acts 16 tells us that the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And so they traveled by Mysia. They came down to Troas. And then Paul has this vision of a guy from Macedonia saying, come on down and help us. And so they basically concluded that God was calling them to preach the gospel in Macedonia, and they did that. But what it shows us is that God's 
um, you know, providential orchestration is something we should actually be very open to and saying, my plans might change. They might turn on a dime. They might turn, uh, in, in a moment, they might be changed. And Paul's plans were always subject to God's editing. God who providentially orchestrates life. That's the first thing we see in this passage. It's really the bulk of the passage. But let's move on to the second aspect, and it's in verse 30, and it's regarding prayer. And we learn something very significant about prayer here. Prayer is a holy privilege and hard work in partnership with God. Prayer is a holy privilege and hard work in partnership with God. It's a holy privilege. He says in verse 30, I appeal to you. Literally, parakaleo, I'm coming alongside you and urging you and exhorting you. I'm imploring you. I'm beseeching you. I'm begging you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. So if it's not enough just to name check Jesus, he name checks the Spirit too. Like, boom! You know what? I have to do that. Now, how many of you are going to go, oh, I'm not going to say yes to that even if it's by Jesus and the Spirit? Paul's like, you know what? I'm, I'm begging you to do this. Pray for me, right? He's wanting them to pray. He's like, it's by our Lord Jesus. It's because this is what pleases Jesus, and it pleases the Holy Spirit. By the love of the Holy Spirit, by the way, only time in Scripture that phrase is seen. Only time it's seen. It, it might be signifying the Holy Spirit's love for us. It might be signifying our love for the Holy Spirit. It might be signifying the love that the Spirit of God generates among believers. It's something about the love of the Holy Spirit. It's a privilege to pray, to go to God in prayer. You're not just speaking out into the air, You're talking to Almighty God, but it's hard work. He says, strive together, literally wrestle with me in your prayers. The Greek word is soon agonizomai, it means to strive together. It's an intense form of agonizomai, which means to struggle or to fight. It's the source of our words agony or agonize. It's used of athletic events, of boxers or wrestlers struggling with each other. And Paul is saying, work hard in your prayers. Prayer is not easy, it is hard work. Paul is asking prayer, and he didn't say to them, you, you fight for me against the enemies. He says, you fight on your knees in prayer. Ask God to intervene. He is praying for protection on the way to Jerusalem. He's asking for acceptance of the gift, prayer for acceptance of the collection in Jerusalem, which would demonstrate Christian unity. To the Colossians, Paul wrote this about Epaphras. He says, one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Wouldn't you love to have a whole uh, team of people who just struggle on your behalf in their prayers? Isn't it encouraging when, when a, a believer, a fellow believer says to you, I have been praying for you, that I'm consistently praying for you? Epaphras prayed for the church that they would stand mature in Christ, that they would be fully assured in the will of God. And Paul says, I bear him witness. He has worked hard for you. Like, he has, how would he know that? He's seen him pray. He's heard him pray. Prayer is hard yet rewarding work. This is like digging a post hole for a fence post. This is like chopping wood. This is like anything not easy. He says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.11, you also must help us by prayer. Don't think that prayer is just this thing that you just do and it might work out. No, you pray 
coming boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and, and, and find help in, uh, in time of need. That you, you help us by prayer, he says, that many would give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. God grants blessings through prayer. Hebrews 13, 18 says, pray for us. Pray for your fellow believers. Right now as I'm preaching, start praying for believers right now. God hears our prayers. Prayer is a partnership with God. He says your prayers to God on my behalf. This has gospel implications, folks. Strong gospel implications. This is the basis of the church praying and preaching the gospel. If Christ was raised from the dead and established as king over the universe, which Romans 1, 3, and 4 say, and if God called Paul to bring the message about these events, uh, Romans 1.5 says that. And if, if Paul put that message in written form here in Romans that we are now reading and benefiting from, then the church has the authority of God to pray boldly and to preach the gospel to the world in God's perfect timing. We ask and God answers. We pray in intercession. Let me ask you about your prayers. Do your prayers revolve around you? Or, or do they move outward to the ends of the earth? Sure, you need to pray about your things and about your life, but take the, the ripples in the pond and go from where you are all the way out. Do the prayers reach to the ends of the earth? God's providential orchestration overrules our personal planning, and prayer is a holy privilege, and it's hard work in partnership with God. Let's talk about the power of God. The power of God. Verse 31. Here's what we learn here. God's powerful presence is a practical reality. Like God is really powerful and he's with believers and he actually acts on behalf of believers in real time. In answer to real prayers. Look at verse 31. That I may be delivered. You're praying. He says you pray that I would be delivered, I'd be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. There are many Jews that were rejecting Christ. They were wanting to attack Paul when he passed by. Paul's aware of trouble. You can see it in Acts 20. He asked them to pray for deliverance so he could do his ministry, right? And then he said that my service, my ministry, my attending to the need for Jerusalem may be acceptable, well-received by the church. And then he says in verse 32, so that by God's will, he is laser focused on the will of God, so should we be. We should be laser focused on wanting the will of God. So that by God's will, by God's desire, by God's pleasure, that I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together in your company, literally be rested together in your company. You know what it's like to be with beloved believers where you are not drained by them, but you are recharged by them. I want to be refreshed May your company. And he says, I want that to happen by the will of God. I'm hoping that happens by the will of God. He was focused on the will of God. He's following Christ's example precisely. In John 5:30, Jesus says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. David, the psalmist, said in Psalm 143, verse 10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. He's saying, I'm yielded. That's our prayer. That should be our prayer. Lord, I'm yielded. Teach me to do your will. Paul stayed focused on the work that God gave him to do. 
he had an economy of effort like Jesus, really, who after three years of ministry could say to the Father in the upper room, I glorified you on earth. I've accomplished the work which you gave me to do. John 17, 4. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And here Paul is asking the Romans to, to pray for something simple yet significant. Pray for the gift to be delivered to Jerusalem. Pray for my protection as I deliver it. By the way, update, prayers were answered. Paul made it, the letter got to Rome. He was able to visit. He had success in Jerusalem. Acts 21 tells us that he was received gladly and they glorified God because of the gift and he was delivered from death, but not prison. He went to prison. Acts 23, 11, while he's in prison, the Lord stands by him. Jesus says to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul recounts this to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, and I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Do you see God displaying his power? Do you see God displaying his power in your life? God's powerful presence is a practical reality for every believer. Now let's look at the last verse, verse 33. And the fourth thing we see in this passage, and it's regarding peace. And here's what we learn. That God's peace gives us assurance of security in Christ. God's peace gives us assurance of security. He says, may the God of peace. Now he's the God of hope. We saw that in verse 13. And he's the source of our peace of our tranquility, of our freedom from rage or the havoc of war, that basically we have harmony and accord and security and safety in our relationship with God. Romans 5.1 says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. There's no animosity on your part anymore towards God. It's like when you make up with a sibling or a friend or a spouse that you've been at odds with. You know how good you feel when everything works out? And then you experience the peace of God. If you have peace with God through faith in Christ, you, you have the peace of God, which is an absence from striving even in a difficult situation where you can actually focus on the glory of God and on gospel ministry even in the midst of a lot of distractions. I think back to my children's pastor days in the 1980s, and I remember driving a church bus with 66 really noisy kids and leaders, many times on day camps and what have you. And I'm telling you, God gave me the ability to focus in and lock in on driving and not even worry about the noise. I've been on a lot of road trips with my family as well, and there are days when you're on a multi-day road trip, there are people in bad moods, including whoever's driving. But the person driving still has to focus on the route or the route I gotta learn how to say that word pretty soon. But what, what it is is God gives you peace that's humanly impossible. He is the God of peace. So a, a believer can actually confidently say, God will hold me fast. It, it's not like a strong possibility. It's actually a guaranteed reality for us. 
I hope you grasp that. Let me ask you the question. Are you living at peace with God? Have you trusted Christ's finished work on the cross that you believe that Jesus died for your sins in your place on the cross, that he was buried and risen on the third day and you are trusting his finished work and not yourself? If so, you have the peace with God. You have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. But are you living with the peace of God that passes understanding? A lot of us live with unrest and turmoil instead of the peace of God that God has granted his children. Now let me just point out the very last word in this passage. It's not filler. It's not just an extra thing. It is crucial. It's the word amen. Do you see that at the very end? Amen. He's gonna say it again at the end of chapter 16, but here he says, amen. It it means firm, it means faithful. If you put it at the beginning of your sentence, it means surely or truly, like Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you. But when you put it at the end, it means so it is, so be it, may it be so. And amen is crucial to our understanding of following Jesus as believers. It was a custom passed from the synagogues to the Christian assemblies. When the reader or the speaker had prayed to God, others would respond, amen, making what was said their own. When they read from the scriptures, they would say, amen. Amen is a remarkable word, a very remarkable word. It's transliterated from the Hebrew into the Greek, and then it went into the Latin and into the English and all the other languages, and it became universal. It's known as the best-known word in in human speech. Everybody says amen. Have you ever thought to think about that? Stop to think about that. Everyone says amen. Amen is an expression of absolute trust and confidence in God. This is how Paul closes the body of the letter of Romans. Are you willing to to yield your plans to God and say amen to that? Are you you willing to pour out your heart to him in prayer and say amen to that? Are you willing to trust that God is able and say amen to that? Is is his saving and sanctifying peace yours and you can say amen to that? Or are you struggling mightily to be free? And deep in your heart, you you wanna honor God. You gotta yield your plans to the Lord. I beg you, yield your plans to the Lord. Pray, Lord, deliver me even from myself. I want to be free. I want to see your power at work in my life. I want to experience your peace. You can pray that right this very moment. And God will bless that humble prayer this very moment and pray it over and over again to know the presence and peace of God. Do you notice at the very end here he says, may the peace, may the God of peace be with you all, amen. Paul could pray that, could say that because he had learned a secret that we need to learn. He talked about it in Philippians four. Here's a man who had experienced foiled plans, failed plans, at times he wanted uh, to die, he despaired of life even. That's how bad things were going for him at times. This was the Apostle Paul going through this. He prayed and things always didn't work out the way he wanted, but you notice what he 
What he says even in Romans 8, you know, God works everything together for good to those who love him. He's accepting God's sovereign weaving of all the, the events of life. And so he asked the Roman Christians to pray for him, not knowing how things were gonna pan out. He asked for prayer, but he declares something very significant, not wishful thinking, but something he had learned. He had learned the secret of being content. And with contentment comes peace. He has peace with God through Jesus Christ. He's been justified by faith. He, he experiences the peace of God that surpasses understanding, and he speaks of this. So think about your plans. Think about your prayers. I hope they're focused on God's glory and others' good. Just remember that God is able to do immeasurably beyond what you can ask or think. When you live like Paul is talking, you experience the peace of God, the deep, abiding, overriding sense that all is well because God is God. Think about it with me. God, who created the world out of nothing. God who put animals of his own making and design, including dinosaurs, on the ark. God who made the sun stand still. God who made an axe head float. God who made a donkey talk. God who had a virgin give birth to God the Son is the one who is powerfully and providentially orchestrating your life. Through all the twists and turns and all the hills and valleys and all the peaks and pits, through the, the thrill of victory and agony of defeat, through thick and thin, because God knows you and God is with you, believers. Can you say amen to that? Can we say amen to that? Amen, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for fostering contentment in our hearts. It's learned, it's granted, it's the heart of our amen. Thank you for showing us that this is how gospel glory and ministry shapes our everyday existence through our plans and through our prayers and we want to see your power, Lord. We want to experience your peace. All for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.